Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Answering your email questions, here's Philip Washington. Back again. So last episode, I talked about if you have any questions, please email me, philip at philipwashingtonjr.com. Uh, I've gotten some good questions for the podcast. Listen, I'm just going to say this. I charge people for advice in my business, Stonehill Wealth Management, and it's not an inexpensive price to get advice. And what I'm telling you is on the podcast, which is separate, you can email me and I'll answer your questions on air for no charge. So take me up on that. Send me the questions. I'm going to answer them. So let's move to the questions that I got. And and this is going to be a long answer, but it's a question that I get a lot of times and I've struggled to figure out how to answer it because it's a pretty complex answer, but I figured out a way to give a simple answer. And here's the question. The question is, Philip, how do I know what you know? How do I know how to, when to buy, when to sell? How do I manage my own portfolios? Ask different ways, but it's basically, how do I know how to invest? And the reason why it's always a complex way to answer, because it's kind of like asking a surgeon, how do I perform surgery? I don't know, go to go to school for 12 years and, you know, learn, like, because there's, it's, it's nuanced. So, so what I did was I broke it down into eight sort of principles and steps that I use when I'm building a portfolio. And I think that'll help you with 85% of what you, what, what people are looking for when they, when they ask this question. So here's step number one. And step number one is just understanding uh, the history of, of the, you know, stock market. And you can actually go, I mean, markets have been around for hundreds of years. I'm going to use the Dow Jones because most people listening are in America and it's, which referenced a lot in business news. And so, and I'm just going to go back to like right after the stock market crashed in 1929. So look at the Dow Jones, January 2nd, 1930. It was at 244. If you look at the history, uh, or if you look at stock market today, like whatever, whatever today is when you're listening, it's pretty close to 100 times more than what it was since then. And since then, we've had lots of things. World War II, a bunch of other wars, some epidemics, some multiple crashes, and so it survived. So, so that principle is be long-term, right? Be long-term. The market works over the long-term. Don't think short-term because if you focus on what's happening right now, uh, this week, whatever, um, or this month, or trying to figure out what the market's going to do this year, you're going to like build a bad strategy. So your strategy needs to be uh, long-term. And I'm not saying it has to be 90 years, but I'm just saying it works out over time. Principle number two on this is uh, it's a study done. And so the study, and, and I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast, so I'll rush through the study, but it's a study that shows what the average investor uh, earns in U.S. stock market over a 10-year, 20-year, 5-year, 30-year period of time. I'm looking at the 30-year period of time. And so the average in- investor in the stock market or the average stock in the U.S. stock market over a 30-year period of time earns something like 10% a year. The average investor investing in the stock market in the U.S. stock market earns something like 4% a year. And that's a big difference. And I'll ask, hey, what do you think the difference is? And people will say, uh, fees? I'm like, no, no, no. Fees are fees are some fees are high, but they're not that they're not that high. The big difference is most people don't have a process. Most people invest based off of emotion, gut feel, what the news tell them, hot stock tips, versus having a process for when they buy and sell. And so this principle is 
when you're building your process, uh, take emotions completely out and stick to your process. Because if you do not have a process, um, you, even even if your process works, which again, going back to the Dow Jones, the Dow Jones is a systemized process of how they determine what stocks go into the Dow Jones index, right? There's a there's a system. They follow the system. The ones that were in there 30 years ago are not the ones that are in there today. And so it's a simple system, but the simple system allows you to pick up roughly the stock market average. With your system, when you build it, if you don't follow your system, even if it's well built, you're not going to earn the return of the system. So this point is stick to the system, take emotions out. Now we'll get to actually building a system part three. So part three, you, you say, okay, now I'm ready to build the portfolio, Philip. The most important factor in building a portfolio is not, you know, stock selection like most people think, and it's not market timing like most people think. It, you know, it's the sexy thing that everybody wants to talk about, but it has very low correlation to what investors earn over time. You know, Google Brinson study, if you really want to nerd out on that, but it just shows that something like 90% or a little more of your return is attributed to what's called asset allocation or what's your mix of um, stocks and bonds, right? And and we're going to go a little bit uh, deeper into what I mean by that on asset allocation. Let me give you an example. So if you were investing from 2000 to 2007, you know, the, 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 the best performing asset classes on that time were emerging markets, commodities, precious metals. So it didn't really matter if you had, you know, um, some great U.S. stock uh, individual businesses, unless you had like the best, which is kind of like drafting LeBron James, just investing in those asset classes gave you the bulk of the return that most investors earn over that period of time. Do the math, do study yourself, look at emerging markets, 07, 2007, look at the U.S. stock market, let's say, look at the Dow Jones, and compare between those times, and then you'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm saying. But the asset class that you own is the most important factor in earning the returns that you want. And even over the long term, your mix of types of stocks and how much bonds you own is a factor, meaning if you own a lot of bonds, just know that you're not going to earn as much money as somebody who has more stocks than you over the long term because of the profiles. So, so the next question is always on this, and this is, I'm still on the same point, asset allocation, but people will say, well, hey, Philip, what are the major asset classes? And there are a lot, and there's new asset classes be, being created every month. So I'm just going to give you the basic, what I call basic food groups, right? The basic ingredients for a portfolio to get you 80, 90% of what you need until you want to get fancy after you put your 10,000 hours in. You have cash, you have bonds. You have emerging market stocks, you have international stocks, and then and you have U.S. stocks. But within U.S. stocks, you have s- small company stocks, mid-sized company stocks, large, cap, large company stocks. You have value stocks and you have growth stocks. Uh, you also have REITs, which are real estate investment trusts, and REITs can be global, not just in the U.S. You have commodities, which are also global. Think of commodities as raw material. So it's the sugar, the wheat, the corn the oil, the natural gas, and you have precious metals, which are silver, platinum, gold. But those are the basic food groups of asset classes and what you will use to build a portfolio, a diversified portfolio to help you reach 
your goal. So step one is understanding asset allocation is what's going to drive the returns of your, over your portfolio. So step four teaches you, all right, how do I decide which asset classes to put money into and, and how much to put into each asset class? And that's the season. So think of everything in life has seasons. So, um, you know, like just in life, you have seasons. You have seasons as a human, seasons of marriage, seasons of being a parent. But let's think about the seasons, the regular seasons, like the, 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 the climate seasons, winter, summer, spring, and fall. And, and markets have seasons, and just like regular seasons, um, they last for a, a long period of time. They don't just, you know, the, the, the weather, you know, some, sometimes in the winter it might be hot or cold, but for the most part, the trend of winter is cold. And so if you know the trend of winter is cold, you're going to have lots of jackets and sweaters. Summertime, if you know the trend of summer is hotter, you're going to have more shorts and, 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 and T-shirts. And so same way you want to dress appropriately for the different season and stack up for clothes appropriately, when you're building a portfolio, you want to know which asset classes do I want to own for which seasons, which ones do better relative to other asset classes during the season, right? So let's talk about the seasons. There's four of them, and I'm oversimplifying it, y'all, but I'm doing this to, to help you get 80-90% of the way there. But the first season is a slow growth period, um, so that's going to be analogous to what we're in right now, 2012 to current, or the 90s, or the 50s and 60s, or the 30s and you know, really, 30s and 40s were also uh, pretty pretty slow. Um, 50s and 60s were, were a faster period of time. But those are examples of slow growth environments. Uh, then you have fast growth. So fast growth is going to be the, and, and when you say fast growth, I'm talking about global growth. Um, so fast growth is going to be um, 2000, 2012, you know, with the hiccup in between of 08. Uh, you're also, you know, looking at the 50s and 60s. And you can also, and this is going narrow, but you can also use this in the context of individual countries, but that's when you want to get fancy. Um, so I'm giving you the global time periods. Um, so you have slow growth, fast growth. Then you have periods of uncertainty where people trust paper money. And then there's periods of, un uh, of uncertainty when people don't trust paper money. So think of those as the four seasons for investing. And let's go through which asset classes do relatively well. And you can literally, I'm going to tell you, what does well, I give you a period, and you can go look at the asset classes, and you'll see what I mean. So let's go to slow growth period of time. 90s, 2012, current, as two examples of slow growth periods of time. What does well in slow growth periods of time, right? Growth stocks, uh, U.S. stocks, large company stocks. Why is that? Because when growth is slow, people are, you know, like more nervous. Um, you also want to own the companies that are eating the other established companies, so growth stocks do well because, you know, Amazon's eating all the other brick-and-mortar restaurants' lunch. So that's where you'll get your growth. U.S. is kind of the safe haven for assets around the world, right? Throughout history, the U.S. has not always been the safe haven, but what I'm saying is the safe haven country, right, the country where it's it has the reserve currency. Before U.S., it was U.K., right? Before U.K., it was... I don't I, let me not even misspeak, but there's always different reserve countries, but they want to own they want to keep their money and safe in those slow growth environments. So those do well. Bonds do well in slow growth environment. Now bonds don't pay much, 
but you'll get some fancy people who will leverage up bonds, um, meaning, you know, borrow money to buy bonds to make it the equivalent risk tolerance of stocks. But that's a little bit fancy. I don't know if I would worry about that for you. But that's an example of asset classes that do well. So growth stocks, U.S. stocks, large company stocks, so large established. You think of situation right now, if you're in a slow growth environment, you have the Amazons, but then you also have the AT&Ts, which are boring companies, but they're big enough to borrow money cheaply because rates are typically low in slow growth environments. And then they do acquisitions to compete with the young hotshots, right? And so that plays itself out over and over and over again, slow growth environment. Then you have the fast growth environment. And fast growth environment, when you when you have that environment, then you have people willing to take more risks, right? So it's emerging markets do relatively well. Small company stocks do relatively well. Value stocks, right? Stocks that were unloved and people were maybe nervous to invest in. Now they're willing to, you know, take more risk and invest in those um, companies. Those do well. Commodities, um, commodities do well because in fast growth environment, inflation picks up, which means the, co- you know, cost of buying materials, right? More people are using raw materials to do business. And so that drives the cost of uh, commodities, precious metals, typically in that environment, People are trusting the dollar less because more business is being done overseas, less dollars. Precious metals tend to do well, right? So look at time periods. That's the 07 to 2007 and right then 09 to 2012. So really 2000, 2012, if you, if you ignore that hiccup, was that environment. But you also had, you know, fast growth environment in the 60s, early 70s before the the, the market cratered um, in 74. And so... Look at those environments and you'll see the asset classes that did relatively well. And and just a matter of context, what you'll see is there wasn't really a developed, an emerging market index built out until maybe like the 90s, right? So you'll really see this example in 2000 and 2012. When you look at the 60s, basically the world had been coming out of a war and nobody was in business except for America. And so America benefited as the emerging market, right? It's when we were becoming the America that every you know, that everybody says we're trying to be great again. But that's when we like built all that wealth and we had really fast growth. So it was kind of the emerging market and becoming the reserve country player. So that you gotta understand that in context. That's fast growth. Then you have uncertainty where people do not trust the dollars, right? So that's classic mid late seventies when US came off the gold standard Oil was skyrocketing. The market had just crashed. The U.S. was growing slow. We had what's called stagflation, slow growth and high inflation. And so in that environment, you know, it was gold, raw materials. If you had cash and bond and U.S. bonds, you might have been getting paid some interest. But if you look at the interest you got paid after uh, inflation, it was nothing, right? And your stocks might have grown. But if you looked at what your stocks made, at, you know, what they grew after inflation, right? Because in stocks are in dollar-denominated return figures if you're a U.S. citizen, and this may be going super nerd too, but the point is, in that environment, the best asset class, the best thing that performed well were basically like commodities and precious metals. Because people are like, hey, I don't trust paper money, so we're going to own the physical stuff. And this also plays out in recession. So if you look at 08 and you dissect it up into 07, 08, if you said, hey, I'm going to own some some gold and you looked at that through 2011, where there was like a, a trend of uncertainty, even though we were coming out of it, like gold performed crazily well over that period of time, right? Along with 
some other asset classes, right? So you can even dissect it into many trends over that period of time. But the point is, when people don't trust the dollar, and, and, and let me, and, and the reason why you hear me kind of struggling to explain this because in real life we have seasons, and they're more defined in markets. You can have an environment where there's you know slow growth and uncertainty, and with low faith in the dollar, right? And so you kind of if you can pick up on that, you build the portfolio appropriately. This is why I was saying I'm giving you 80%, 90%, but it's nuanced. But that's uncertainty with no trust in the dollar. Then you, then you go to uncertainty with faith in paper money. Uh, and that's like, like 08, you know, early 09. Everybody wants to own cash, right? Because the U.S. was the first to move to pump money in the system. They were like, well, cool. Like the U.S. is going to give us a stopgap. So we want to own like U.S. bonds, cash, right? And people that were not in U.S. bonds and cash basically got rocked at the end of 08. And so um, those are the four seasons. And if you play it out and you look in different history, the same asset classes perform relatively well in the same seasons over time. If you know the season, you, then you know how to position, just like in the wintertime. If you know it's winter, you know how to dress. You don't have to, you don't have to predict when it's going to be winter. You just have to be able to, what I call, check the temperature, right, which moves to... The next part, which is um, what I would call 4A, right, because we're on four for seasons, is how to determine the season. And so how do you determine the season is you can look at, like, all kinds of economic data. So you can look at um, – I'm trying – I'm going to have to go nerd on this because there's no other way. So you can look at gross domestic product, GDP. You can look at uh, gross national product, GMP. You got to look at that for uh, not just the U.S., but other countries as well, because you want to get a global view of it. You can look at interest rates and what the Fed is doing for all the major Feds. You got to look at oil and gas numbers, like production numbers, output numbers. There's unlimited things you can look at on the economic side to get a feel for how the global economy is doing. It's time intensive. You got to have a big staff. And the other problem is that they're lagging indicators, right? Because these are, you know, these are, everybody knows governments are relatively inefficient at getting report, you know, reporting and all that kind of stuff. And, and by the time they get the reporting, it's like, it's after the fact, right? When we get GDP, it's what's already happened. Markets have already discounted what happens ahead of time. Like the, the markets, and people say, well, what are the markets, right? The markets are a collective group of people looking at data in real time and making decisions. So, so markets tend to discount all this data, you know, six to nine months in, a, in advance. And, and let me explain it in a better example. So there was this professor that did a study in, in class, and he had like these jelly beans in the jar in the front. And he asked people to get, he asked the class, he asked each person to guess how many jelly beans were in the jar. And nobody got the right exact answer. But when, you, when he added up all the answers and averaged it out, it was like pretty spot on with the amount of jelly beans you know, in the jar. And that's what I mean, the power of the market. Like markets are how we dictate the people say, Jordans are too expensive, right? They're 300 bucks. Well, if the market's paying it, it's not too expensive. There's enough people buying it, you know, in, or the housing market. How do we know what our house is worth? The market tells us, right? You know, if it's if it's priced too high, nobody's going to buy it, you know? So the market is, a, is the most effective way um, to get information um, you need to make financial decisions. And so same, you know, in the stock market. What I, what I like to use to determine the seasons is the market. Don't get me wrong. I look at the other information, right, as confirming evidence. But the market will tell you 
a lot. If it, I was explaining to a client, you know, when I look at CNBC, those numbers that are going across the screen on the bottom and they're, and they're giving you interest rate prices and they're giving you stock prices and they're giving you commodity prices. When you learn to, you know, what I call read the market, I can look at it and say, oh, okay, the market's saying that this is the environment that they believe it's going to today, right? And day to day, the market's trying to predict out what, you know, the reason why you have the volatility is it's a constant price discovery every single day. And so it may be one day where the market's saying, oh, no, we're going into a, you know, uncertain environment where, you know, where people don't trust the dollar, right? Next day, it might say, oh, man, things are great, right? So that's why you have these swings, but you can look at the different asset classes and how they're acting and it can give you insight into it. What what? So that's the short term noise. But to to figure out the long term trend, because trading short term is a tough game. It's like playing LeBron James one on one. But you can get the long term right. That's not that's not hard, because these seasons they don't play out for like a week or a month. Right? They play out multi years. You you my, the numbers I was using was the '90s slow growth, 2012 to current, 2000 to 2007. Right. These were like multi years, and so um, so you can you can get the long term trend, and so what you so to get it you want to look at like how are all the asset classes acting over a long period of time. So maybe look maybe look back over one year, or ten or, or two years, and say all right how were you know how was cash acting over the last two years? How did bonds act? How did emerging markets act? How did international stocks act? What were the returns of those different asset classes? And that'll give you insight into the trend. So for example, if Large caps, U.S. stocks, tech stocks, growth stocks are performing well relative to everything else, then, you know, okay, we're in a slow growth environment. The market's saying we're in a slow growth environment, and I'm not going to argue with the market. What ends up happening is when you listen to the market, you're always going to be late. When we change seasons, there's a lot of what I call up and down, like noise. You're like, well, man, Goals move to the top, but it's also there with growth stocks. And so I'm, I'm confused, right? And so you're going to be behind the curve as the change is happening. But then once the change is firmly in force, you reposition and you're right from multi-year. Because here's a cool point. Just because you're not early doesn't mean you're not going to make the money. You'll make the money. It's multi-years. And so you just want to see what the market is telling you. But also look at the other stuff because the other stuff will kind of help you maybe get your timing better, right? That's where the art comes in. But let the market give you a lot of uh, good information and then confirm that with the other fancy economic data. So that's the season. Next question is, Philip, okay, when I'm doing this, should I use stocks or should I use mutual funds, right? And mine is, A, it depends on your risk tolerance, but I would never use like traditional mutual funds. They're too expensive. You overpay for for, for uh, what you get. I like to use index funds or exchange-traded funds, which are just buying baskets of stocks. Because again, going back to the first part of building a portfolio, asset allocation is most important of which asset classes you're in. So you don't need, if you can get that right, you don't need to overpay for a mutual fund for the mutual fund manager to say, let me pick the best stocks. You just say, I just need a basket of U.S. stocks. Or I need a basket of U.S. small cap stocks. Or I need a basket of emerging market stocks. And I need it at low cost, right? Which are what index funds and ETFs um, um, give you. And so, um, so I would say the question should be, should I use stocks or ETFs? Exchange-traded funds are basically exchange-traded index funds. They're the same thing as index funds for the most part. They're just traded on an exchange. So the index fund, you, you, can, you have to buy and sell only once a day at the end of the day. ETFs, you can trade throughout the day like stocks, right? So if you hear me saying ETFs instead of index funds, that's actually what I use. But it's 
a different way to do it. And so stocks or ETF, it depends on your risk tolerance, right? Stocks are more concentrated. They're more volatile. And so you can lose more money, but you can potentially make more money. And so that's going to be your risk tolerance. You decide, like, I, I like to personally use a combination of the two. But that goes back to what's your time frame? How far are you from your goal? What's your risk tolerance? And then you can back into uh, which one you want to use. And then when you're choosing an ETF, look for low cost, right? Look for low cost. Look for an ETF company, if you're using an ETF company, that actually an, an ETF is going to like track a benchmark. So let's use, for example, the Dow Jones we've been talking about. it. There's an ETF that will just track the Dow Jones. It'll buy what the Dow does. And what you want to know is, is it low cost and does it actually track the Dow? Because if the Dow over the last five years made 20% and the index made 30%, they're doing something wrong, right? And so that's called tracking error. So look at the tracking error. Third thing is, does a company have a culture of stewardship, right? Meaning Vanguard, for example, has constantly put pressure on the mutual fund industry as a whole to drop prices, and they're almost always the leader. So they're showing a culture of saying, we want to do what's right for the client before somebody else puts pressure on us to do it. And I like that. I like to look for the the ones that have a culture of um, stewardship. So that's how I choose uh, which ETF companies to use. Seven is manage risk. So so if you can understand that's the allocation is appropriate, you get the season right, you pick stocks or ETFs or both, and you pick the right ones, then you want to say, okay, how do I manage risk, right? And that's done really two ways, diversification, spread your money out. And diversification is basically like a bargain with the gods, if you will. It's saying, hey, if I diversify a lot, I'm not going to make a killing, but I'm not going to get killed, right? And if I don't diversify, then I can get killed, Right. And so and so in between those two is basically like going back to risk tolerance. Right. If you own if you say, hey, I want to own the best three stocks that are going to be in this season and one or two of your stocks blow up like that's a lot of money. Right. But if you own 10,000 you know, stocks through an ETF portfolio, you're not going to make as much money as if you owned three and you were right or 10 and you were right. Right. So that's going to be part of the art and your risk tolerance. You f- you figure that out. But I tend towards being more diversified than what you think you should be. Um, because like Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Everybody says I'm cool with risk until you lose a ton of money. And avoid leverage. Leverage hurts people in real estate, but it also hurts people in the stock market because you can borrow money to invest in your account and it's sexy and it could, you know, you can make a lot of money, uh, but you can also lose a lot. And so I like to avoid leverage in the portfolio. Um, you know, I personally would be a hypocrite if I said I don't use some leverage, right? Because there's there's actually some ETFs you can buy that has embedded leverage. Um, but I don't I don't use it. And this is for my money. I don't do it for clients. This is for my money. Um, but um, I use it very, like, very conservatively, right? It's, I'm, I'm using it in a way where it won't, like, if it, if it blows up, it won't blow up everything. But that just comes with, you know, 14 years of doing this in a four-year finance degree. Like, I, I, you know, I understand the nuances enough to know what blows me up and what's not. If you, if you don't know how much is too much to get blown up, don't use it. That's kind of the, the rule. Last one, and this is probably the most important one uh, for answering this question, right? So if you get the portfolio right and you build it right and you manage risk appropriately, then the hardest part is step eight. People say, what's the, what's the hardest part about managing the portfolio, right? It is having faith in the future. Going back to point one, Dow Jones, 
January 2nd, 1930, 2.44 to now. You had to have a lot of faith in the market to live through, if you were investing in 1930 to now, to live through everything that happened in America and the world uh, over that period of time. And there's a lot of bad stuff that happened since then. So you got to have faith in the future. Uh, you have to be patient. It's constantly in the first few years of clients, they're talking about, oh, my account's growing so slow. Oh, we're still down and it's been 18 months, you know, or blah, 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 right? Whatever the point is, everybody says, yeah, I want to be long-term, but it's hard to be long-term, right? Because like you, you, it's natural to want to make money every, every day, every week, every month, but it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And we can't control, like I can't jack the market up and say, make me some money today. It didn't work like that. Like there's all kinds of variables that we cannot control. Uh, just like being a husband, being a parent, being a business person, you know, you, only thing you can do is control how you react in every situation. And so the market over time is going to do what it's going to do. And, um, you know, I have faith it's going to continue to deliver lots of money and lots of, lots of value. Um, so that's why you got to have faith first. But then you can't control when it's going to do it. You can just control how you respond, meaning if coronavirus has the market drops 4,000 points in a week uh, on the Dow Jones, you can choose to panic out or you can choose to stick to it. And whatever you choose is up to you. Or if Bitcoin comes out and runs up 4,000% return in eight months, you can decide to undiversify your portfolio and put a big chunk of your money in Bitcoin and try to make a little bit of money. Or you can say, well, diversify it. That's on you. But you can't control, like, all the stuff that happens. So you got to have patience. And discipline and patience are kind of like cousins. But discipline is just the consistent following your process, you know, consistently adding money to your portfolio, consistently following your rules, consistently to adjust the portfolio when the seasons say adjust, you know, when the seasons say adjust, uh, even though you might feel different. I feel different. I'm not a robot. When it's time just my portfolio, I'm like, man, but I just feel, and I have my opinions like everybody else, but I follow the process because the process has been tested over multiple economic cycles, and it works. You can't expect to win the championship all the time. So I, I like to use like Nick Saban or Bill Belichick. And actually going to football, I actually really hope Tom Brady doesn't come back to the Patriots because I've been saying for years Bill Belichick is why they have these championships. He, he just needs a good quarterback but they're still going to be a top contender because they have a process, right? They don't win every single year, but they're almost always a contender because they have a process. Same with Nick Saban. Everybody this year was like, oh, Alabama ought to throw it away. I'm like, because they lost two games? <laughs> you know, like they lost two games and everybody's like, they steamrolled everybody, lost two games, didn't make it to the dance, and they make it to the dance every single year almost. And people are like, oh, it's over. That's how good they are, right? Because it's the process. They get different players in. But their process is tight. And that's what I'm saying about your investment process. You just want to have a really good process. It doesn't mean you're going to have the highest returns that you can brag to your friends about every time. But what it means is you play that out over multi-years. I would bet on you for beating them out over the long term because to get the best returns in the year, you almost almost have to be doing something wrong, right? So going back to Bitcoin. Right? Bitcoin provided the – there are some people who were bragging about how much money they made and they were investing in Bitcoin at the exact wrong time right? Uh, they were out on the ledge, or I like to call it out in the middle of the ice or out in the middle of the lake when it's iced over and they keep going out where the ice is thin and that's where you get caught. So don't get caught, right? Be long-term, have faith, patience, discipline. And that's really, 
that's everything you need to build a portfolio. I'm trying to think of any question that people might ask as I explain this. They might say, well, Philip, you know, you said determine a trend by looking at the different asset classes, returns relative to each other, right? Is there an indicator? Whatever. There's lots of indicators. I'm not going to do that in the podcast. You can like Google indicators for determining, you know, the trend, but I've basically given away the the, the recipe here in this podcast episode. This is this is what I do, right? Putting together may not be as simple as it sounds, but you have the recipe so you can listen to it over and over again, replay it, um, email me more questions. Like I said in the beginning, philip at philipwashingtonjr.com. Um, but that is, this is, this is the playbook. Uh, for those of you that uh, have found this interesting or at least one podcast episode, episode interesting, please give me a review on iTunes or Spotify. It helps more, more people hear about the podcast. It helps me keep doing the podcast because uh, if I keep getting more listeners, it helps my ego and I like to do more episodes. You know, uh, again, I'm I'm taking time out of my day uh, to share free information, um, not as a saint, like it helps me get business, you know, but it helps me get business because people are telling fr- their friends about it and they're hearing about the episode and they're calling me or coming to my seminar. So I hope this helps you. Y'all enjoy your day. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.